You're listening to the Bravehearted Voices podcast. In this podcast, we feature sermons that deeply stir us toward Jesus Christ and living fully for His glory. As you listen to this powerful collection of communicators from yesteryear, it is our desire that you be stirred to live a life fully given to Jesus Christ and discover a Christianity that actually works. Just to give you a feel of what's taking place, it is the actual chapter where we have the scene of the crucifixion itself, the mockery that takes place, the symbol that's put above the head of Jesus as he's dying on a cross. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. You feel like taking your shoes off when you walk into this chapter. Matthew's doing something dynamic in this chapter, and I'm not sure uh, all that it's doing to me. Uh, It's too soon to tell. But chapter 27 is an impactive chapter, no question about that. Matthew chapter 27, let's stand together in honor of the word. And we're going to begin with verse 3 and read verse 3 and 4. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and to the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said... What is that to us? You see to it. Look at verse 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitude that they they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said to him, Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? And they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather a tumult was arising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. Look at verse 41. Likewise, the chief priest, also mocking with the scribes and the elders, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross. We'll believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I'm the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Oh, Jesus, we're too nice to do that sort of thing. We wouldn't walk before a cross, a dying man, poke fun, mockery. Would we? What we would really like to do tonight, Jesus, we would like to see you like you are. And we have that overwhelming sense that if we ever see you, if our eyes ever become open... If we ever really grasp, ah, we'll see ourselves and the transformation that can come if we would throw our lives away and give ourselves up and let you do your living through us. Deliver us, O God, from ourselves in this hour. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. May be seated. One thing that has deeply impressed me about the book of Matthew is that even the casual reader, if you just kind of walk through the chapters just casually, you are impressed with the fact of the overwhelming emphasis on the cross of Jesus Christ. We've got it calculated right over one half of the chapters in the book of Matthew, 28 chapters, are distinctly dealing with the subject of the cross, and not just the cross as an event, you understand, but the cross as a style, and a call to the disciples to throw their life away, to die, to give themselves up. And it's constantly, from chapter 16 all the way through into chapter 27, this cross is such, well, it's so highlighted, you can't even, you can't miss it, possibly. Now, other places in the, in the Matthew, uh, for instance, chapter 10, 
and other significant passages. He also mentions the cross and this whole cross style, but it's in this section, over half of the book, that he just keeps throwing this cross in your face as if this is significant to him. You know, of course, that Matthew was writing with a distinct purpose in mind. He was wanting to convince the Jews that Jesus was and is the kingly Messiah. He's been using an argument all the way through. It's the argument of authority. He has been constantly lifting Jesus up as the authoritative one. If he centralizes on the cross in half of the chapters, you would get the idea, would you not, that he sees the cross as a significant argument in convincing the Jews that Jesus was and is the kingly Messiah. And no doubt it's a significant argument in convincing every single one of us of what this whole business is all about after all. And that's the strange twist of the gospel. Because you see, normally we would think that this cross would disgrace him, and yet here it is, gracing him with the crown of authority. Normally you would think this cross would disqualify him, but here it is, qualifying him. And Matthew's constantly showing us that. You see, normally you'd think the cross would eliminate him from the possibility of being a Messiah, and yet here it is, it does not eliminate him. It includes him and makes it all possible. And somehow the whole business of a cross turns from a place of disgrace into a throne from which he reigns as sovereign king of the kingdom. And again, it's the strange backwardness of the kingdom. But those of us who are kingdom people and live in the middle of kingdom thought, we see this whole principle of life comes out of death. Not as strange at all or backwards. We see this whole principle of the way to win is to lose. We see it not strange at all as a worldviews. We see it as the reality of life itself. It's the way things really work. That the way to get is not to grab. The way to get is to give. It's the strangeness of the gospel. For it's the cross, you see. And all the wonder that's going on on this cross. We've come to give an overall view of chapter 27. And the whole chapter, of course, is lengthy and it's dynamic in its impact. I want to offer you a proposition of truth out of this passage. That the cross is more than an adequate verification of the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. Seems to be an obvious question, doesn't it? How does it verify? How does the cross verify his Messiahship? And it's interesting and unique how he goes about this chapter. He calls for testimonies. I think that's something. He calls for testimonies and witnesses. Of course, that was Old Testament style, you see. If you could get two or three witnesses to verify, then it was a fact. And he's called for witnesses and testimonies. And he isn't going to those that you would think would validate Jesus Christ. He isn't going to his friends. He hasn't come to his disciples, not in this, in this chapter. He has come to his enemies. And it's out of the lips of enemies that suddenly... The whole style of the Christ is uplifted. And you see that he is verified in his Messiahship from those who hated him the most. There are three dynamic concepts that begin to emerge out of this chapter. And one of them is the righteousness of Jesus. You see it from the testimonies. The second one is the royalty of this Christ. Again, you see it from the testimonies of the enemies. And the third one is the relationships of this Christ. We only want to deal with one of them tonight. The righteousness of Christ. One of the dynamic concepts that just begins to emerge constantly out of the testimonies in this chapter about this Jesus is that he is righteous. Oh, I know I don't need to spend time convincing you of the righteousness of this Jesus. But you and I realize the significance of the statement because the whole business of his messiahship hangs on whether he is righteous or whether he is not. If he is not righteous, we have no business here. This whole thing is a waste of time. The only thing that makes it all right in our eyes, in the eyes of a redeemed society, is the fact that he literally can pull this off because he indeed is righteous. When you go back into an Old Testament structure, you understand this concept strongly from the Old Testament. The prophecies concerning the Messiahship were always talking about His righteousness. You have a difficult time reading. It would take a lot of time to read all of the passages 
where the Messiahship of, of the Christ to come is mentioned and it constantly links with it this overwhelming idea and these words of without blemish that this Messiah is to be one without blemish. Do you realize all the sacrifices in the Old Testament, the majority of times a sacrifice is made to God and it's mentioned in the Old Testament, it again links these words without spot, without blemish. The people in Jesus' day, they understood this. You could not possibly bring a lamb to offer on the Passover season that had a blemish. In fact, before you could offer your lamb as a sacrifice, it had to be inspected by the high priest, and it had to be assured that there was this was a lamb without spot and blemish because this was absolutely necessary. They understood this in terms of sacrifice. That's what we call symbolic prophecy. There is verbal prophecy, which is a statement by a prophet, but you see there are these typologies that are interwoven into the very systems that are taking place, that God is literally interwoven into the structure of ceremonies, and one of them that just constantly leaps out is this fact that the Messiah to come was to be an individual who would be righteous without spot, without blemish. Oh, what a truth it is. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Listen to this. You know these words. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things. Powerful statement. Like silver and gold. Nor were you redeemed from your aimless conduct received by traditions from your father's but how were you redeemed? You were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Well, it's all over the pages of the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13 and 14. For if the blood of the bulls and the goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctified for the purifying of the flesh, how much more? How much more shall the blood of Christ, who, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without spot to God? Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, I understand that all that's theology, and theology doesn't mean much to most of us. I understand that's all conceptual and concepts, so what? And theology is never any good unless it's applied to personal life. But you see, there's a powerful application that's taking place on this subject in this book that comes right to where you and I are in this moment. Because it becomes very, very personal. The sacrificial system in an Old Testament just screams at us constantly that the Messiah is righteous. The pages of the New Testament constantly scream to us that the Jesus, who was the fulfillment of that Messiahship, was and is righteous. But you see, the flip side to that is that in the midst of his righteousness and the overwhelming painting of this going on on this cross of his dynamic righteousness, in the middle of that, ladies and gentlemen, there is a significant revelation of our unrighteousness. And that's the overwhelming crime of the hour, that somehow you and I have violated the terms by which Man can have relationship with God, and we have violated the terms by which you and I can have relationship with each other. And the fall is not some ancient event back in Genesis chapter 3. It is a living reality that's forcing itself through our bloodstreams in these moments and living in our relationships now. And indeed, we are a vile, vile people. Isaiah 64, verse 6. We are all like an unclean thing. And all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away.
Boy, it's hard to think of yourself like that, isn't it? As good as we are. See, it's very difficult for us in our comfortable evangelical setting to thrust ourselves against the wall and, and not admit to this in just a theological sense, but to come down to, and not to say, well, we have all sinned, but to come down to looking ourselves personally square in the face and say, I am a vile, unrighteous individual. And when you take all of my goodness and stack it up, it only screams of my iniquity. And the conclusion of that, if you ever come to that place, of course, there's never redemption if you don't. But if you, if you come to that place, the conclusion of all of that is that there is no way to dig myself out of this hole. I can never do enough good deeds to make up for what I have done. And I can never think enough good thoughts to cancel out the thoughts I've had in the past. And if I work my fingers to the bone from this morning on for the church, I would never pull righteousness off because the hole is too deep and I cannot pull myself up by my own bootstraps and there's no way to shake myself out of this thing and I will never merit and I will never earn and I will never balance this thing out for my iniquity. And my unrighteousness is too great. Well, if that's true, then the whole case is hopeless. I know. Then there's no way out. I know. Then despair sets in. I know. Then we go from this service in great dismay. I know. Except, ladies and gentlemen, one who is righteous came. and transferred his righteousness to us. And what I couldn't have in myself, I found in him. Yeah. And he transferred it to me. And what the cross was all about, Matthew is saying to us, is a righteous Jesus who did not deserve death, a righteous Jesus who should never have been have suffered, a righteous Jesus who should not have subjected himself to this, a righteous Jesus has done this so that in you his righteousness could begin to live. It's the cross. And you understand, oh, be sure on this one, it's not a fake out. This is not a paper deal. This is not a legal aspect. This is a practical, down to it, every day, flow through the bloodstream, spill into the relationship kind of deal. This is not an imputed, this is an imparted Well, listen to these words. Ephesians 1, 4. Just as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Well, listen to these words. Colossians 1, 22. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death and presented you holy and blameless and irreproachable in his sight. And here is a Jesus who has suffered and died so that you could identify with him. And in his death, his death would become your death so that his life would become your life and his righteousness would be your righteousness. But you see, your righteousness is never his righteousness until you are willing to turn loose of your own. And his life is never your life 
until you are willing to turn loose of your own. And I, I just in my mind in the evangelical church and especially in the holiness movement cannot fathom why we keep slipping back into a Christianity that has the mentality of self-works. Where we kneel in an altar and slap our hand and try to do better while we try to do the right things. And Christianity for so many of us through the evangelical church is a, is a struggle and a try and are you a Christian? Oh, I'm trying to be. But it's really hard. And we work and we struggle and we ache and we try and we... As if we have not learned that all of your trying and all of your striving and all of your struggling is meaningless. Because the deal is, he died that he might take his righteousness and transfer it to you so that it wouldn't be you, it would be him in you. And this is never what you do. It's always what he does through you. And you don't serve him, you become available that he might serve himself through you. And it's not your actions, it's his divine action upon the stage of your life when you finally die and get out of his way and let God do some powerful things through you. Well, bless God, I showed him my stuff. We're so sick of seeing your stuff. What we'd like for you is, what we'd like to see is for you to die. So you could demonstrate his stuff and we could see a little of what he is in your life. Well, bless God, I gave him a piece of my mind. We're sure sick of that. What we'd like for you to do is to die and get the mind of Jesus so that your mind thinks his thoughts. And your mind isn't your mind, it's his mind within you. And you begin to give us a piece of his mind. See, this is never what you do. This is always who he is. And he wants to take what he is, and he wants to transfer it to you. And the transformation of this takes place on a cross in death. That's what he's telling us in chapter 27. He is righteous. Now, I want to walk through this with you a little bit because it's so significant. Look at verse 4. Judas is speaking. And he starts out, Matthew starts out with this element of righteousness. It's called blameless. Blameless. Jesus is blameless. Verse 4 saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now, you know the scene back up at verse 3. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing Oh, stop right there. Back up to verse 2. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him. See, this is the crack of dawn. Hey, the Sanhedrin met through the night. Then they got together again the next morning. And they verified what they had done that night. And lo and behold, they've taken Jesus. They beat him. His face is all puffed out. His eyes are swollen shut. He can hardly see. Blood is dripping from his brow. Here he is in this horrible, horrible condition. And they're leading him out, bound. And Judas is standing there and seeing the whole thing. And when he saw it, it got to him. Remorse moved within him, an uncontrollable urge that said, I've got to undo this. I've got to retrace my steps. He grabs the money that's hot in his hand. He runs to the chief priest and the elders where he made the deal in the first place. He says, here, I want to undo this whole thing. Take it back. They wouldn't. He threw it on the floor. And his statement, I have sinned by betraying Innocent blood. Do you see what Matthew's doing? He didn't get some decent people like us to come and testify in Jesus' behalf. He gets a traitor. A betrayer. The one who lived with him for three years and knifed him in the back. The one who had the on-the-job training deal. And yet threw it overboard. He says, hey, call in Judas. And let him tell you what this Jesus is really like. Because through the lips of a betrayer, when the bottom line is finally drawn, he cannot live with what he's done. Because he knows. He knows what this Jesus is like. And even the betrayer cannot justify his own actions. Look at his statement. I have sinned. 
The word sin there is very interesting because it's the most commonly used word for sin. It does not have the connotation of evil or wicked. It's the word that's used for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, which is literally the word that describes you're shooting an arrow with your bow and you're aiming for the target. You pull it back, you release it, but you fall short of the target. All have fallen short. That's the word here. He's saying, I missed it. That's what he's saying. I have sinned. I have missed it. And again, the connotation is not evil, not wicked. He doesn't have horns sticking through his head. This is not a pitchfork for a tail, folks. This is not this overwhelming. This is a man who had cast out demons and raised the dead. And yes, we know that the devil got involved in it. We know the evil of that. We understand that. But we're talking about a guy who says, I have just simply missed it. But note this, ladies and gentlemen, whether it's committing adultery, whether it's pornography, whether it's abortion, whatever sin you want to name, or whether it's just plain flat down to it, missing the will of God in your life, it still nails into a tree. And I've become deeply aware through the whole study of this thing that you cannot shake yourself from the overwhelming awareness that We've missed it, too. Oh, read on. Verse 4. I have sinned by betraying. The word betraying there is very interesting because it's, it has the idea of surrendering. It has the idea of yielding up. See, I have, I've taken something that I have, that I have, and I've given it. Over. Oh, that's what he's saying. Do you get it? I've missed it because I have given up something that I had. A disciple. I lived in the power of the divine. I knew what it was for the power of the divine God to move through me and create miracles. I knew something of the divine plan as it was being spilled out through the lips of Jesus. I was there. I had the opportunity to plug in to literally redeeming an entire world. And what did I do? I took that opportunity and I just gave it up. I missed it. I gave up my opportunity. I blew it for 30 pieces of silver. About 15 bucks. If it had been a hundred pieces of silver, would that have made it worthwhile? If it had been two hundred, if it had been a thousand. I shouldn't get off on a sermon on materialism here, should I? Because isn't it going to be awful, ladies and gentlemen, to come up the end of this whole thing and say, I went to church and I did all the right things, but the truth of the matter was, I missed it. For a dollar bill. I missed it. For stuff. Wow. Oh, read on. Verse 4. Say, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now, you know Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. The Old Testament concept that the life is in the blood. So the Old Testament Jew, he believed that the life was contained within the blood. So when Judas says, innocent blood, he translated innocent life. And what is he saying? This Jesus is not guilty. He did not do anything to deserve this. He is guiltless. He never pulled off any of the lies you guys concocted. He is innocent. That's the righteousness he wants to transfer to you. Can you imagine the overwhelming opportunity of after all you've done and all the way you've lived of standing before God as if you had never in your entire life ever did anything wrong. 
We call that forgiveness. And he, not because you made up for it, not because you took all the stuff back that you took, not because you were able to take back all the words you said, but because he took his not guilty, never did anything wrong, and he's transferred it to you. See, no wonder we're a shouting crowd. See, no wonder, folks, the streets have heard about this one. See, no wonder day after day after day, the guys down at our work just get sick to death of hearing us say, Woo! I'm forgiven. Blameless. Oh, my past is new. Well, what'd you do? Nothing. He did it. And transferred what he is into me. Wow. What a revelation. I want you to look at a second one. I want you to go to verse 19 and down through 24, which is the second section. You see, it's not only blameless, he is not guilty, and he wants to transfer that to you, but behavior is a part of this righteousness. Now, he's calling up witnesses. Here's the betrayer who comes along and says, I was wrong. Don't be deceived by what, by what I did. He is not guilty. Now he's calling up a Roman governor. And get this, his wife too. That's significant. You see, here's an outsider. He's not a part of this religious world. Surely he can be objective on this whole thing. Jesus is no threat to him and his position. Hey, this... this Man from Galilee, this fisherman, this carpenter, Jesus, come on, and his little band, that's no threat to Pilate. He can be honest. Caiaphas, you can't trust him. Jesus threatens him, but not this Pilate. And what do they have to say? Well, look at verse 24. Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather a tumult was rising, took water, washed his hands, and said, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. Just person, he called him. Well, you say, I have the NIV, and that's not in my Bible. Okay, back up. Look at verse 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him a note saying, Have nothing to do with this judgment. Get this now. To have nothing to do with this just man, for I've suffered many things today in a dream. Oh, brother, she's been dreaming again. Hey, call this what you will. Call it woman's intuition. Call it spiritual warfare and some kind of a mystical communication of the spiritual battle that was going on and raging at this moment. Call it, ladies and gentlemen, what you will. But something is taking place, and Matthew's making a statement saying, This Jesus is just. Listen to Pilate. If you don't believe him, listen to his wife. You can always trust the wife. Just. The word actually is righteous. Did you know the word used to be spelled right-wise? Now, you understand there's a difference between the New Testament concept of righteousness and the Roman concept of righteousness. And what we're dealing here is with a Roman who is speaking this. So you haven't got the New Testament view here. You've got the Roman view of his day. And Pilate, what he's meaning by this, or his wife, what she's meaning by this is outwardly moral, ethical action. They're talking about behavior, how this Jesus has acted day after day after day. And they're saying... I want you to know that this Jesus in every action, this Jesus consistently and constantly spilled out his life in the actions of righteousness. And everyone he touched and everything he said and everywhere he went, he was right and he was just. Now, what did Judas say? Oh, he's not guilty. He didn't do anything wrong. Now we've moved from not just ceasing to do the wrong, but doing the right. 
See, it's one thing never to do anything wrong. It's another thing to do something right. The people who stand and testify and tell me, Brother, I don't chew and I don't smoke and I don't go with girls that do. And I want to tell you I don't do this and I don't do that and I don't do the other and I don't do and I don't do and I don't do. I feel like standing up and saying, Good night. What do you do? Do you do anything? Do you win anybody to God? You are so centralized on what you don't do, you never get around to doing anything. You wouldn't have half the trouble not doing if you'd get busy doing. And if Judah says, yes, he didn't do the wrong, but Pilate says, I want to tell you, he did the right Do you see the wedding in that? Do you see the marriage of that thing? See, this is inwardly and outwardly. This is character and action. This is what he is inside now spilling to the outside. This is character and behavior all wrapped up together. This is the marriage of the dynamic of the whole being in the actions of righteousness spilling out and literally moving a world. Matthew's trying to tell you something with all of your background, the filth of your life, the evilness of your thoughts. How are you going to get, how are you going to get out of this hole? How are you going to ever stand before God, right? Oh, he's come. A Jesus who not only didn't do the wrong, but he consistently did the right. And guess what he's doing? He's taking all of that righteousness and he's literally transferring it to you so that your system becomes from the inside to the outside a flow of righteousness, not yours, his, that is now dynamically spilling to your world. And the life of Jesus is going to be reproduced on our streets as Jesus lives again. Do you see how much greater this is than just keeping rules? Do you see how much greater this is than just ceremonies? Do you see how much greater this is than, well, I went every night to revival. Do you, do, do you see how much greater this is than just deeds done? Don't you see this is what he is now coming to be and what I am until what I am becomes what he is. And how am I like this? You see, Christianity does not call you to be what you can be and to do what you can do. Because if Christianity is what you can do and what you can be, it's not too hot because you're not too hot. Christianity calls you to be what you can't be and to do what you can't do. Well, how on earth, I'm, how on earth am I going to do what I can't do? He's going to come and do through you if you just die and get out of his way. The cross. He wants to take all that he is and transfer it to you, but you've got to join him in death. What a truth. Here's the most fun of it all. It's verse 43. Yes, Matthew says he is righteous, blameless. He's righteous in behavior, but oh, look at belief, which is the foundation of it all. Verse 43. You know the scene here. He's been looking for witnesses. And lo and behold, he's not dug up close friends and he's not dug up family. Matthew's come to Judas, the betrayer, who said he didn't do anything wrong. A Roman pagan governor and his wife who said he did everything right. Now, the strangest of all, chief priests and elders. These are the boys who actually divvied out the money to get the false witnesses to nail him. They aren't going to say anything good about Jesus. They aren't going to testify in his behalf. They won't. Oh, listen. Look at verse 41. Likewise, the chief priest also mocking with the scribes and the elders. This is interesting because this is the top of the denomination who are involved in this one. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. 
If he is the king of Israel, let him come now down from the cross and we will believe. He trusted in God. You remember how it was when you were a kid? Oh, you guys didn't participate in this, but there was somebody, some kid in this class who was overweight and everybody made fun of him. There was some kid with a big nose, wish I hadn't have brought that up, who was made fun of because of his, somebody's ears stuck out and they called him. They mocked him. But you understand, the mockery was what the kids saw. I mean, it wasn't like they made things up. I mean, he really was overweight, you know. And he really did have a big nose. And his ears really did stick. That's what's happening here. See, they're not making anything up. They have looked at the life of Jesus and they are mocking him in what they saw. And you know what they saw? He trusted in God. He trusted in God. Look where it got him. He's hanging on a tree, dying. He trusted in God, but God isn't going to come through for him. Look at him. He trusted in God. It's all mockery. But don't you see? They're telling the truth about him. He trusted in God. Now, the word trust there is not the normal word for believe. It's literally, well, it's strange because it's used just a few times in the New Testament, but it's over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament. It's the Psalms is full of it. And remember, these are Old Testament people who are speaking. And when the chief priests and the elders look at this Jesus, they go back into the Old Testament Psalms, pull out the concept and say, he trusted in God. And the word literally has the has the significance of confidence, thoroughly, absolutely convinced. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will, com will complete it until the day of Jesus. Confidence, absolute, total trust. Now, again, this is not the common word for believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. This is the word for extreme, absolute confidence. Back up again and look at verse 42. They said he saved others. Well, that was true. They're not making anything up. He did save others, raised the dead, healed lepers, fed 5,000 starving men besides women and children. He did save others. That was true. Himself, look at him. He cannot save. Boy, they had good theology for such liars. They were telling the truth. He saved up. Jesus had been preaching that at them all of this time. You cannot save others and yourself at the same time. And what was his style? Pour your life out and save others. Well, what happens to you then? You cannot save yourself. Well, if you can't save yourself, what are you going to do with yourself? Trust in God. Spill your life out for others. And as far as you are concerned, trust God. Get your fist down from defending yourself. And as far as you're concerned, pour your life out for others and trust him. Total, absolute assurance, confidence, knowing. Well, it sure doesn't look like beyond the way it looks in total, absolute confidence, trusting your... Have you ever trusted him more than you've trusted yourself? Have you ever trusted him? his thinking more than you've trusted yours. Have you ever trusted him more than you've trusted your traditions? Have you ever trusted him more than you've trusted? We've always done it this way. Have you ever trusted him more than what you've always been taught? Have you ever just taken your life and just put it together in one significant package and dumped it into his hands and said, Hey, I totally, absolutely risk 
my whole self on you. I will no longer trust what I do. I'm going to trust what you're doing. I no longer will trust what I think. I'll trust what you think. This will no longer be what I want. This will be what you want. And I'm risking my whole self on that. That's what he did. Oh, are you getting this? See, his righteousness... The righteousness of Jesus was not his either. Well, where'd he get it? He told us all the time. From the Father. And the Father transferred his righteousness to the Son because the Son simply, totally, absolutely trusted him. And what Jesus did, he didn't do. Well, who did it? The Father did it through him, and the life of Jesus wasn't the life of Jesus. Well, whose life was it? The Father who was living through him, and the whole thing hung on the fact that here was a man made out of flesh and bones and blood who literally risked his whole life in confidence on the Father, and the Father took that life and began to demonstrate himself through it until we looked into the face of Jesus and we saw God. What's that got to do with me? Do the same thing. Take your whole life and risk it on him until you get out of your living. And he begins to live his life through you. You mean I'm not supposed to live? You're catching on because I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. No, I don't live. Well, yes, I do live. Well, it's not me. Well, it is me. Well, no, it's not. Well, I'm alive. Well, no, I'm not alive. Well, who is it? I'm under new management. It's the same old nose, but I'm under new management, folks. And something's going on inside of me that's not me. And I'm out of control because this is not what I... You, you, you don't know me because this isn't me. And I'm living like I can't live and I'm being what I can't be and I'm acting like I can't act. And Christianity is clear beyond my realm into his, and I have become a vessel into which he has indwelt himself and is acting. Do you know that kind of Christianity? See, this is not be raised in the church, bump your head once there, twice there, and do all the right things. See, this is the aggressive, active person of Jesus literally living himself through you because you have come and trusted him, died, joined him. Jesus, we pray. For an openness within us for you to do in and through us what you want to do. What would be the significance of this in our homes? What would be the significance of this in our families? What would be the significance of this in our community? If we cease to live. And you begin to live through us. We ceased to do, and you were doing through us. We didn't have our programs. You had our programs. What would be the significance of this in our denomination? My God! If we got out of control and you... If we as an institution died, if we as a church died, if we as individuals died, and you began to dynamically act out your righteousness through us. People have been turned off with our righteousness, Jesus. But I think they would be awakened if they were slapped in the face with you. Creating us a hunger for this. Heads about. He died. 
to transfer what he is into you. Are you open to that tonight? Would you be willing to kneel at this altar and let him take all that he is and do what needs to be done to make all that he is in all that you are? Would you be willing to turn loose of all your attempts and all your control for him to do as he does in and through you. I invite you to death, the death to yourself and the life, the life of himself. Our organist is playing. Heads are bowed. God is speaking. Our altar is open. Presents your body a living sacrifice. Would you kneel and let him transfer himself in his fullness into you? You've struggled long enough. You've tried your best and haven't made it. You've struggled and still have the haunting sensation that you aren't right. Why don't you throw in the towel? Would you be filled with him instead of yourself? We're waiting for you. Bravehearted Voices is brought to you by the Ministry of Deeper Christian in partnership with Ellerslie Discipleship. Our passion is to help you grow spiritually by providing Christ-centered resources, discipleship, and training in the Word of God and the victorious life of Christ. Our agenda is to bring back the stuff of old, the sort of Christianity that is lived out with the gusto of heaven and actually and practically works. For more, visit bravehearted voices. Dot com.